Section 13 of Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne. Letters 48 to 58 to the Honourable Daines Barrington. Letter 48 to the Honourable Daines Barrington. Selborne. How diversified are the modes of life, not only of incongruous, but even of congenerous animals, and yet their specific distinctions are not more various than their propensities. Thus, while the field cricket delights in sunny dry banks, and the house cricket rejoices amidst the glowing heat of the kitchen hearth or oven, the grillus grillatalpa, the mole cricket, haunts moist meadows, and frequents the sides of ponds and banks of streams performing all its functions in a swampy wet soil. With a pair of forefeet, curiously adapted to the purpose, it burrows and works underground like the mole, raising a ridge as it proceeds, but seldom throwing up hillocks. As mole crickets often infest gardens by the sides of canals, they are unwelcome guests to the gardener, raising up ridges in their subterraneous progress, and rendering the walks unsightly. If they take to the kitchen quarters, they occasion great damage among the plants and roots, by destroying whole beds of cabbages, young legumes, and flowers. When dug out, they seem very slow and helpless, and make no use of their wings by day, but at night they come abroad, and make long excursions, as I have been convinced, by finding stragglers in a morning in improbable places. In fine weather, about the middle of April, and just at the close of day, they begin to solace themselves with a low, dull, jarring note, continued for a long time without interruption, and not unlike the chattering of the fern-owl or goat-sucker, but more inward. About the beginning of May they lay their eggs, as I was once an eye-witness, for a gardener at a house where I was on a visit, happening to be mowing on the sixth of that month by the side of a canal, his scythe struck too deep, pared off a large piece of turf, and laid open to view a curious scene of domestic economy. Ingentum lato dedit ore fenestram, apparet domesentus, et atria longa patescunt, apparent penetralia. Reader's note. He made a large, wide-mouthed hole, and the interior of the palace was revealed, with long halls open to sight. The inner chambers were also in view. End reader's note. There were many caverns and winding passages leading to a kind of chamber, neatly smoothed and rounded and about the size of a moderate snuff-box. Within this secret nursery were deposited near an hundred eggs of a dirty yellow colour, and enveloped in a tough skin, but too lately excluded to contain any rudiments of young, being full of a viscous substance. The eggs lay but shallow, and within the influence of the sun, just under a little heap of freshly moved mould, like that which is raised by ants. When mole-crickets fly, they move cursu undoso, rising and falling in curves, like the other species mentioned before. In different parts of this kingdom people call them fen-crickets, churworms, and eave-churs, all very apposite names. Anatomists who have examined the intestines of these insects astonish me with their accounts, for they say that from the structure, position, and number of their stomachs, or moors, there seems to be good reason to suppose that this and the two former species ruminate or chew the cud, like many quadrupeds. Letter 49 to the Honourable Daines Barrington, Selborne, May the 7th, 1779. It is now more than forty years 
that I have paid some attention to the ornithology of this district, without being able to exhaust the subject. New occurrences still arise as long as any inquiries are kept alive. In the last week of last month, five of those most rare birds, too uncommon to have obtained an English name, but known to naturalists by the terms of Hymantopus or Loripes, and Charadrius Hymantopus, were shot upon the verge of Frincham Pond, a large lake belonging to the Bishop of Winchester, and lying between Walmer Forest and the town of Farnham, in the county of Surrey. The pond-keeper says there were three brace in the flock, but that, after he had satisfied his curiosity, he suffered the sixth to remain unmolested. One of these specimens I procured, and found the length of the legs to be so extraordinary that at first sight one might have supposed the shanks had been fastened on to impose on the credulity of the beholder. They were legs in caricature, and had we seen such proportions on a Chinese or Japan screen, we should have made large allowances for the fancy of the draughtsman. These birds are of the plover family, and might with propriety be called the stilt plovers. Brisson, under that idea, gives them the apposite name of lichasse. My specimen, when drawn and stuffed with pepper, weighed only four ounces and a quarter, though the naked part of the thigh measured three inches and a half, and the legs four inches and a half. Hence we may safely assert that these birds exhibit weight for inches incomparably the greatest length of legs of any known bird. The flamingo, for instance, is one of the most long-legged birds, and yet it bears no manner of proportion to the Hymantopus, for a cock flamingo weighs, at an average, about four pounds avoirdupois, and his legs and thighs measure usually about twenty inches. But four pounds are fifteen times and a fraction more than four ounces and one quarter, and if four ounces and a quarter have eight inches of legs, four pounds must have one hundred and twenty inches and a fraction of legs. That is, somewhat more than ten feet, such a monstrous proportion as the world never saw. If you should try the experiment in still larger birds, the disparity would still increase. It must be a matter of great curiosity to see the stilt plover move, to observe how it can wield such a length of lever with such feeble muscles as the thighs seem to be furnished with. At best one should expect it to be but a bad walker, but what adds to the wonder is that it has no back toe. Now without that steady prop to support its steps, it must be liable, in speculation, to perpetual vacillations, and seldom able to preserve the true centre of gravity. Reader's Note There is a miscalculation here, first corrected, in an edition of 1877. The computation should be made according to the cube root of the weight of the bird. End Reader's Note The old name of Hymantopus is taken from Pliny, and by an awkward metaphor implies that the legs are as slender and pliant as if cut out of a thong of leather. Neither Willoughby nor Ray, in all their curious researches, either at home or abroad, ever saw this bird. Mr. Pennant never met with it in all Great Britain, but observed it often in the cabinets of the curious at Paris. Hasselquist says that it migrates to Egypt in the autumn, and a most accurate observer of nature has assured me that he has found it on the banks of the streams in Andalusia. Our writers record it to have been found only twice in Great Britain. From all these relations it plainly appears that these long-legged plovers are birds of South Europe, and rarely visit our island, and when they do are wanderers and stragglers, and impelled to make so distant and northern an excursion from motives or accidents for which we are not able to account. One thing may fairly be deduced, that these birds come over to us from the continent, since nobody can suppose that a species not noticed once in an age and of such a remarkable make, can constantly breed unobserved in this kingdom. 
Letter fifty to the Honourable Daines Barrington, Selborne, April the twenty-first, seventeen eighty. Dear sir, the old Sussex tortoise that I have mentioned to you so often is become my property. I dug it out of its winter dormitory in March last, when it was enough wakened to express its resentment by hissing, and packing it in a box with earth, carried it eighty miles in post-chaises. The rattle and hurry of the journey so perfectly roused it, that, when I turned it out on a border, it walked twice down to the bottom of my garden. However, in the evening, the weather being cold, it buried itself in the loose mould, and continues still concealed. As it will be under my eye, I shall now have an opportunity of enlarging my observations on its mode of life and propensities, and perceive already that, towards the time of coming forth, it opens a breathing-place in the ground near its head, requiring, I conclude, a freer respiration as it becomes more alive. This creature not only goes under the earth from the middle of November to the middle of April, but sleeps great part of the summer, for it goes to bed in the longest days at four in the afternoon, and often does not stir in the morning till late. Besides, it retires to rest for every shower, and does not move at all in wet days. When one reflects on the state of this strange being, it is a matter of wonder to find that Providence should bestow such a profusion of days, such a seeming waste of longevity, on a reptile that appears to relish it so little as to squander more than two-thirds of its existence in a joyless stupor, and be lost to all sensation for months together in the profoundest of slumbers. While I was writing this letter, a moist and warm afternoon, with the thermometer at fifty, brought forth troops of shell-snails, and at the same juncture the tortoise heaved up the mould and put out its head, and the next morning came forth, as it were, raised from the dead, and walked about till four in the afternoon. This was a curious coincidence, a very amusing occurrence, to see such a similarity of feelings between the two feriokoi, for so the Greeks call both the shell-snail and the tortoise. Summer birds are, this cold and backward spring, unusually late. I have seen but one swallow yet. This conformity with the weather convinces me more and more that they sleep in the winter. Letter 51 to the Honourable Daines Barrington, September the 3rd, 1781 I have now read your miscellanies through with much care and satisfaction, and am to return you my best thanks for the honourable mention made in them of me as a naturalist, which I wish I may deserve. In some former letters I expressed my suspicions that many of the house-martins do not depart in the winter far from this village. I therefore determined to make some search about the south-east end of the hill, where I imagined they might slumber out the uncomfortable months of winter. But supposing that the examination would be made to the best advantage in the spring, and observing that no martins had appeared by the 11th of April last, on that day I employed some men to explore the shrubs and cavities of the suspected spot. The persons took pains, but without any success. However, a remarkable incident occurred in the midst of our pursuit. While the labourers were at work, a house-martin, the first that has been seen this year, came down the village in the sight of several people, and went at once into a nest, where it stayed a short time, and then flew over the houses. For some days after, no martins were observed, not till, the th not till the 16th of April, and then only a pair. Martins, in general, were remarkably late this year. Letter 52 to the Honourable Daines Barrington Selborne, September the ninth, 1781 I have just met with a circumstance respecting swifts, which furnishes an exception to the whole tenor of my observations, ever since I have bestowed any attention on that species of hirondines. 
Our swifts, in general, withdrew this year about the first day of August, all save one pair, which in two or three days was reduced to a single bird. The perseverance of this individual made me suspect that the strongest of motives, that of an attachment to her young, could alone occasion so late a stay. I watched, therefore, till the twenty-fourth of August, and then discovered that under the eaves of the church she attended upon two young, which were fledged, and now put out their white chins from a crevice. These remained till the twenty-seventh, looking more alert every day, and seeming to long to be on the wing. After this day they were missing at once, nor could I ever observe them with their dam coursing round the church in the act of learning to fly, as the first broods evidently do. On the thirty-first I caused the eaves to be searched, but we found in the nest only two callow, dead, stinking swifts, on which a second nest had been formed. This double nest was full of the black shining cases of the Hippoboschi hirundinus. The following remarks on this unusual incident are obvious. The first is, that though it may be disagreeable to swifts to remain beyond the beginning of August, yet that they can subsist longer is undeniable. The second is that this uncommon event, as it was owing to the loss of the first brood, so it corroborates my former remark, that swifts breed regularly but once, since was the contrary the case, the occurrence above could neither be new nor rare. P.S. One swift was seen at Linden, in the county of Rutland, in 1782, so late as the 3rd of September. Letter 53 to the Honourable Danes Barrington As I have sometimes known you make inquiries about several kinds of insects, I shall here send you an account of one sort which I little expected to have found in this kingdom. I had often observed that one particular part of a vine growing on the walls of my house was covered in the autumn with a black dust-like appearance on which the flies fed eagerly, and that the shoots and leaves thus affected did not thrive, nor did the fruit ripen. To this substance I applied my glasses, but could not discover that it had anything to do with animal life, as I at first expected, but on a closer examination behind the larger boughs we were surprised to find that they were coated over with husky shells, from whose sides proceeded a cotton-like substance, surrounding a multitude of eggs. This curious and uncommon production put me upon recollecting what I have heard and read concerning the Coccus vitis viniferi of Linnaeus, which in the south of Europe infests many vines, and is an horrid and loathsome pest. As soon as I had turned to the accounts given of this insect, I saw at once that it swarmed on my vine, and did not appear to be at all checked by the preceding winter, which had been uncommonly severe. Not being then at all aware that it had anything to do with England, I was much inclined to think that it came from Gibraltar, among the many boxes and packages of plants and birds, which I had formerly received from thence, and especially as the vine infested grew immediately under my study window, where I usually kept my specimens. True it is that I had received nothing from thence for some years, but as insects we know are conveyed from one country to another in a very unexpected manner, and have a wonderful power of maintaining their existence till they fall into a needus proper for their support and increase, I cannot but suspect still that these cocci came to me originally from Andalusia. Yet all the while candour obliges me to confess that Mr. Lightfoot has written me word that he once, and but once, saw these insects on a vine at Weymouth in Dorsetshire, which, it is here to be observed, 
is a seaport town to which the Caucasus might be conveyed by shipping. As many of my readers may possibly never have heard of this strange and unusual insect, I shall here transcribe a passage from A Natural History of Gibraltar, written by the Reverend John White, late vicar of Blackburn in Lancashire, but not yet published. In the year 1770, a vine which grew on the east side of my house, and which had produced the finest crops of grapes for years past, was suddenly overspread on all the woody branches with large lumps of a white, fibrous substance resembling spider's webs, or rather raw cotton. It was of a very clammy quality, sticking fast to everything that touched it, and capable of being spun into long threads. At first I suspected it to be the product of spiders, but could find none. Nothing was to be seen connected with it but many brown oval husky shells, which by no means looked like insects, but rather resembled bits of the dry bark of the vine. The tree had a plentiful crop of grapes set when this pest appeared upon it, but the fruit was manifestly injured by this foul encumbrance. It remained all the summer, still increasing, and loaded the woody and bearing branches to a vast degree. I often pulled off great quantities by handfuls, but it was so slimy and tenacious that it could by no means be cleared. The grapes never filled to their natural perfection, but turned watery and vapid. Upon perusing the works afterwards of Monsieur de Romeu, I found this matter perfectly described and accounted for. Those husky shells which I had observed were no other than the female coccus, from whose sides this cotton-like substance exudes, and serves as a covering and security for their eggs. To this account I think proper to add that though the female cocci are stationary, and seldom removed from the place to which they stick, yet the male is a winged insect, and that the black dust which I saw was undoubtedly the excrement of the females, which is eaten by ants as well as flies. Though the utmost severity of our winter did not destroy these insects, yet the attention of the gardener in a summer or two has entirely relieved my vine from this filthy annoyance. As we have remarked above that insects are often conveyed from one country to another in a very unaccountable manner, I shall here mention an emigration of small aphids, which was observed in the village of Selborne no longer ago than August the 1st, 1785. At about three o'clock in the afternoon of that day, which was very hot, the people of this village were surprised by a shower of aphids or smotherflies which fell in these parts. Those that were walking in the street at that juncture found themselves covered with these insects, which settled also on the hedges and gardens, blackening all the vegetables where they alighted. My annuals were discoloured with them, and the stalks of a bed of onions were quite coated over for six days after. These armies were then no doubt in a state of emigration, and shifting their quarters, and might have come as far as we know from the great hop plantations of Kent or Sussex the wind being all that day in the easterly quarter. They were observed at the same time in great clouds about Farnham, and all along the vale from Farnham to Alton. Letter 54 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Dear Sir, when I happen to visit a family where gold and silver fishes are kept in a glass bowl, I am always pleased with the occurrence because it offers me an opportunity of observing the actions and propensities of those beings with whom we can be little acquainted in their natural state. Not long since I spent a fortnight at the house of a friend where there was such a vivary, to which I paid no small attention, taking every occasion to remark what passed within its narrow limits. 
It was here that I first observed the manner in which fishes die. As soon as the creature sickens, the head sinks lower and lower, and it stands, as it were, on its head, till, getting weaker and losing all poise, the tail turns over, and at last it floats on the surface of the water, with its belly uppermost. The reason why fishes, when dead, swim in that manner is very obvious, because when the body is no longer balanced by the fins of the belly, the broad muscular back preponderates by its own gravity, and turns the belly uppermost, as lighter from its being a cavity, and because it contains the swimming bladders, which contribute to render it buoyant. Some that delight in gold and silver fishes have adopted a notion that they need no aliment. True it is that they will subsist for a long time without any apparent food but what they can collect from pure water frequently changed. Yet they must draw some support from animalcula and other nourishment supplied by the water, because though they seem to eat nothing, yet the consequences of eating often drop from them. That they are best pleased with such jejune diet may easily be confuted, since if you toss them crumbs they will seize them with great readiness, not to say greediness. However, bread should be given sparingly, lest turning sour it corrupt the water. They will also feed on the water-plant called lemna, duck's meat, and also on small fry. When they want to move a little, they gently protrude themselves with their pinnae pectorales, but it is with their strong muscular tails only that they and all fishes shoot along with such inconceivable rapidity. It has been said that the eyes of fishes are immovable, but these apparently turn them forward or backward in their sockets, as their occasions require. They take little notice of a lighted candle, though applied close to their heads, but flounce and seem much frightened by a sudden stroke of the hand against the support whereon the bowl is hung, especially when they have been motionless and are perhaps asleep. As fishes have no eyelids, it is not easy to discern when they are sleeping or not, because their eyes are always open. Nothing can be more amusing than a glass bowl containing such fishes. The double refractions of the glass and water represent them when moving in a shifting and changeable variety of dimensions, shades, and colours, while the two mediums, assisted by the concavo-convex shape of the vessel, magnify and distort them vastly. Not to mention that the introduction of another element and its inhabitants into our parlours engages the fancy in a very agreeable manner. Gold and silver fishes, though originally natives of China and Japan, yet are become so well reconciled to our climate as to thrive and multiply very fast in our ponds and stews. Linnaeus ranks this species of fish under the genus of Cyprinus, or carp, and calls it Cyprinus auratus. Some people exhibit this sort of fish in a very fanciful way, for they cause a glass bowl to be blown with a large hollow space within that does not communicate with it. In this cavity they put a bird occasionally, so that you may see a goldfinch or a linnet, hopping as it were in the midst of the water, and the fishes swimming in a circle round it. The simple exhibition of the fishes is agreeable and pleasant, but in so complicated a way becomes whimsical and unnatural, and liable to the objection due to him, qui variari cupit rem prodigialiter unam. Reader's note who loves to make changes in wondrous manner upon one theme. End reader's note. I am, etc. Letter 55 to the Honourable Daines Barrington, 
October the 10th, 1781. Dear Sir, I think I have observed before that much the most considerable part of the house-martins withdraw from hence about the first week in October, but that some, the latter broods, I am now convinced, linger on till towards the middle of that month, and that at times, once perhaps in two or three years, a flight, for one day only, has shown itself in the first week of November. Having taken notice in October 1780 that the last flight was numerous, amounting perhaps to one hundred and fifty, and that the season was soft and still, I was resolved to pay uncommon attention to these late birds, to find, if possible, where they roosted, and to determine the precise time of their retreat. The mode of life of these latter hirundines is very favourable to such a design, for they spend the whole day in the sheltered district between me and the hangar, sailing about in a placid, easy manner, and feasting on those insects which love to haunt a spot so secure from ruffling winds. As my principal object was to discover the place of their roosting, I took care to wait on them before they retired to rest, and was much pleased to find that, for several evenings together, just at a quarter-past five in the afternoon, they all scudded away in great haste towards the south-east, and darted down among the low shrubs above the cottages at the end of the hill. This spot, in many respects, seems to be well calculated for their winter residence, for in many parts it is as steep as the roof of any house, and therefore secure from the annoyances of water, and it is moreover clothed with beech and shrubs, which, being stunted and bitten by sheep, make the thickest covert imaginable, and are so entangled as to be impervious to the smallest spaniel. Besides, it is the nature of underwood beech never to cast its leaf all the winter, so that, with the leaves on the ground and those on the twigs, no shelter can be more complete. I watched them on to the 13th and 14th of October, and found their evening retreat was exact and uniform, but after this they made no regular appearance. Now and then a straggler was seen, and on the 22nd of October I observed two in the morning over the village and with them my remarks for the season ended. From all these circumstances put together, it is more than probable that this lingering flight, at so late a season of the year, never departed from the island. Had they indulged me that autumn with a November visit, as I much desired, I presume that with proper assistance I should have settled the matter past all doubt, but though the 3rd of November was a sweet day, and in appearance exactly suited to my wishes, yet not a martin was to be seen, and so I was forced reluctantly to give up the pursuit. I have only to add that, were the bushes which cover some acres, and are not my own property, to be grubbed and carefully examined, probably those late broods, and perhaps the whole aggregate body of the house-martins of this district, might be found there, in different secret dormitories and that so far from withdrawing into warmer climes, it would appear that they never depart three hundred yards from the village. Letter 56 to the Honourable Danes Barrington They who write on natural history cannot too frequently advert to instinct that wonderful limited faculty which in some instances raises the brute creation, as it were, above reason, and in others leaves them so far below it. Philosophers have defined instinct to be that secret influence by which every species is impelled naturally to pursue at all times the same way or track, without any teaching or example. 
whereas reason, without instruction, would often vary, and do that by many methods which instinct effects by one alone. Now this maxim must be taken in a qualified sense, for there are instances in which instinct does vary and conform to the circumstances of place and convenience. It has been remarked that every species of bird has a mode of nidification peculiar to itself, so that a schoolboy would at once pronounce on the sort of nest before him. This is the case among fields and woods, and wilds, but in the villages round London, where mosses and gossamer and cotton from vegetables are hardly to be found, the nest of the chaffinch has not that elegant finished appearance, nor is it so beautifully studded with lichens as in a more rural district, and the wren is obliged to construct its house with straws and dry grasses, which do not give it that rotundity and compactness so remarkable in the edifices of the little architect. Again, the regular nest of the house-martin is hemispheric, but where a rafter or a joist or a cornice may happen to stand in the way, the nest is so contrived as to conform to the obstruction, and becomes flat or oval or compressed. In the following instances, instinct is perfectly uniform and consistent. There are three creatures, the squirrel, the field-mouse, and the bird called the nuthatch, Sitter europea, which live much on hazelnuts, and yet they open them each in a different way. The first, the squirrel, after rasping off the small end, splits the shell in two with his long foreteeth, as a man does with his knife. The second, the field-mouse, nibbles a hole with his teeth, so regular as if drilled with a wimble, and yet so small that one would wonder how the kernel can be extracted through it, while the last, the nuthatch, picks an irregular ragged hole with its bill. But as this artist has no pause to hold the nut firm while he pierces it, like an adroit workman he fixes it as it were in a vice, in some cleft of a tree or in some crevice, when, standing over it, he perforates the stubborn shell. We have often placed nuts in the chink of a gate-post where nut-hatches have been known to haunt, and have always found that those birds have readily penetrated them. While at work they make a rapping noise that may be heard at a considerable distance. You that understand both the theory and practical part of music may best inform us why harmony or melody should so strangely affect some men, as it were by recollection, for days after a concert is over. What I mean, the following passage will most readily explain. Prohabibat poro vocibus humanis, instrumentisque harmonicis, musicam ilam aviam, non quad alia coquinon delectaretur, sed quod ex musica humana relinquaretur in animo continens quaedam, attentionemque et somnum conturbans agitatio, dumascensus excensis tenores ac mutationes ille sonorum et consonantiarum iuntque rediuntque per fantasiam, cum nihil tahe relinqui posit et modulationibus avium, quae quod non sunt perundia nobis imitabiles, non possunt perundi internam facultatem commoveri. Gassendus in Vita Peireskii Reader's note. He preferred the music of birds to the voices of men and of musical instruments. He did also take pleasure in these, but the music made by men caused in his mind a certain agitation, distracting his attention and disturbing his sleep. 
while the rise and fall and changing of the notes and harmonies kept running through his mind but the songs of birds which we are not able to imitate to the same extent are less likely to affect our inner senses End reader's note. this curious quotation strikes me much by so well representing my own case and by describing what i have so often felt but never could so well express when i hear fine music i am haunted with passages therefrom night and day and especially at first waking which by their importunity give me more uneasiness than pleasure elegant lessons still tease my imagination and recur irresistibly to my recollection at seasons and even when i am desirous of thinking of more serious matters i am etc letter fifty seven to the honourable danes barrington a rare and i think a new little bird frequents my garden which i have great reason to think is the petty chaps it is common in some parts of the kingdom and i have received formerly several dead specimens from gibraltar this bird much resembles the white-throat but has a more white or rather silvery breast and belly is restless and active like the willow wrens and hops from bough to bough examining every part for food it also runs up the stems of the crown imperials and putting its head into the bells of those flowers sips the liquor which stands in the nectarium of each petal sometimes it feeds on the ground like the hedge-sparrow by hopping about on the grass-plots and mown walks one of my neighbours an intelligent and observing man informs me that in the beginning of may and about ten minutes before eight o'clock in the evening he discovered a great cluster of house-swallows thirty at least he supposes perching on a willow that hung over the verge of james knight's upper pond his attention was first drawn by the twittering of these birds which sat motionless in a row on the bough with their heads all one way and by their weight pressing down the twig so that it nearly touched the water in this situation he watched them till he could see no longer repeated accounts of this sort spring and fall induce us greatly to suspect that house-swallows have some strong attachment to water independent of the matter of food and though they may not retire into that element yet they may conceal themselves in the banks of pools and rivers during the uncomfortable months of winter one of the keepers of walmer forest sent me a peregrine falcon which he shot on the verge of that district as it was devouring a wood-pigeon the falco peregrinus or haggard falcon is a noble species of hawk seldom seen in the southern counties in winter seventeen sixty seven one was killed in the neighbouring parish of farringdon and sent by me to mr pennant into north wales since that time i have met with none till now the specimen measured above was in fine preservation and not injured by the shot it measured forty-two inches from wing to wing and twenty-one from beak to tail and weighed two pounds and a half standing weight this species is very robust and wonderfully formed for rapine its breast was plump and muscular its thighs long thick and brawny and its legs remarkably short and well set the feet were armed with most formidable sharp long talons the eyelids and sear of the bill were yellow but the irides of the eyes dusky the beak was thick and hooked and of a dark colour and had a jagged process near the end of the upper mandible on each side its tail or train was short in proportion to the bulk of its body yet the wings when closed did not extend to the end of the train from its large and fair proportions it might be supposed to have been a female 
but I was not permitted to cut open the specimen. For one of the birds of prey, which are usually lean, this was in high case. In its craw were many barley-corns, which probably came from the crop of the wood-pigeon, on which it was feeding when shot, for voracious birds do not eat grain, but when devouring their quarry, with undistinguishing vehemence, swallow bones and feathers, and all matters indiscriminately. This falcon was probably driven from the mountains of North Wales or Scotland, where they are known to breed, by rigorous weather, and deep snows that had lately fallen. I am, etc. Letter 58 to the Honourable Danes Barrington My near neighbour, a young gentleman in the service of the East India Company, has brought home a dog and bitch of the Chinese breed from Canton, such as are fattened in the country for the purpose of being eaten. They are about the size of a moderate spaniel, of a pale yellow colour with coarse bristling hairs on their back, sharp upright ears and peaked heads, which give them a very fox-like appearance. Their hind legs are unusually straight, without any bend at the hock or ham, to such a degree as to give them an awkward gait when they trot. When they are in motion their tails are curved high over their backs like those of some hounds, and have a bare place each on the outside from the tip midway, that does not seem to be matter of accident but somewhat singular. Their eyes are jet black, small and piercing, the insides of their lips and mouths of the same colour, and their tongues blue. The bitch has a dew claw on each hind leg, the dog has none. When taken out into a field the bitch showed some disposition for hunting, and dwelt on the scent of a covey of partridges, till she sprung them, giving her tongue all the time. The dogs in South America are dumb, but these bark much in a short, thick manner, like foxes, and have a surly, savage demeanour like their ancestors, which are not domesticated, but bred up in styes, where they are fed for the table with rice-meal and other farinaceous food. These dogs, having been taken on board as soon as weaned, could not learn much from their dam, yet they did not relish flesh when they came to England. In the islands of the Pacific Ocean the dogs are bred up on vegetables, and would not eat flesh when offered them by our circumnavigators. We believe that all dogs in a state of nature have sharp, upright, fox-like ears, and that hanging ears, which are esteemed so graceful, are the effect of choice breeding and cultivation. Thus in the travels of Isbrant Ides, from Muscovy to China, the dogs which draw the Tartars on snow sledges near the river Obi are engraved with prick ears, like those from Canton. The Kamschatdales also train the same sort of sharp-eared peak-nosed dogs to draw their sledges, as may be seen in an elegant print engraved for Captain Cook's last voyage round the world. Now we are upon the subject of dogs, it may not be impertinent to add that spaniels, as all sportsmen know, though they hunt partridges and pheasants as it were by instinct, and with much delight and alacrity, yet will hardly touch their bones when offered as food, nor will a mongrel dog of my own, though he is remarkable for ending that sort of game. But when we came to offer the bones of partridges to the two Chinese dogs, they devoured them with much greediness and licked the platter clean. No sporting dogs will flush woodcocks till inured to the scent and trained to the sport, which they then pursue with vehemence and transport, but then they will not touch their bones, but turn from them with abhorrence, even when they are hungry. Now, that dogs should not be fond of the bones of such birds as they are not disposed to hunt, is no wonder, 
but why they reject and do not care to eat their natural game is not so easily accounted for, since the end of the hunting seems to be that the chase pursued should be eaten. Dogs again will not devour the more rancid waterfowls, nor indeed the bones of any wild fowls, nor will they touch the fetid bodies of birds that feed on offal and garbage, and indeed there may be somewhat of providential instinct in this circumstance of dislike, for vultures and kites and ravens and crows, etc., were intended to be messmates with dogs over their carrion, and seem to be appointed by nature as fellow scavengers to remove all cadaverous nuisances from the face of the earth. Note, Hasselquist, in his travels to the Levant, observes that the dogs and vultures at Grand Cairo maintain such a friendly intercourse as to bring up their young together in the same place. The Chinese word for a dog to a European ear sounds like quilo. End note. I am, etc. The end of section 13 of Gilbert White's The Natural History of Selborne.